Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. My guest today is someone I wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, but first let me schedule a little background. While we all fret about ESCOM and its inabilities to supply enough power to run this economy reliably, and while we fret about this power station and that one and the infighting that goes on about how quickly we can transition away from coal to renewable energy, there's another whole plan on the go. Uh, that in a way makes the entire future or could make the entire future of ESCOM almost academic. At its centre, probably no surprise, is Minerals and Energy Minister Guido Mantasha, ANC chairman and a powerful politician despite having been largely written out of the ESCOM script with the arrival on the scene last year of a new electricity minister, Jotiencho Ramachopa. As the new story unfolds, it all seems somehow as if we're being blindsided by the ESCOM problem and the government's high-profile attempts to rescue it. At the centre of the subterfuge is natural gas. Subterfuge may be unfair. What's happening, in fact, is largely public, but it isn't sexy and it doesn't get much coverage. But plans are afoot to build a massive liquid national gas LNG infrastructure in this country, Converting, converting big ESCOM plant to gas, building new gas-fired power plant, thousands of kilometers of pipeline, planted ports to offload gas and possibly even convert South African trucks and taxis to run off gas, and a whole new state-owned gas trading company. It promises billions of rand in new investment and absolutely staggering risks if it turns out to be the wrong call. Without any question, the journalist doing the best job of covering all of this is Susan Comrie from the investigative group Amabungane. I first started following her work on gas at the very beginning of 2021, just a month or less than a month, in fact, after Mantasha's department snuck out just ahead of the first COVID Christmas holiday, such as they would turn out to be a gas master plan. Susan, thank you so much for joining me. The, the master plan I brought out on the in in December of 2020 was very sneaky, I think, indeed. It came out on December the 14th and required all comment on it to be in by the end of January 2021, six weeks later. And yet the report made wild claims about the benefit of LNG, saying it would, quote, rejuvenate an overburdened, outdated energy infrastructure. You immediately started making calls. What was it about the master plan that caught your attention? I mean, I think partly it was just as you've said the you know the timing of when it's released it's always kind of fascinating to see you know governments all over the world do it sort of release um unpopular or controversial bits of of proposed legislation just kind of when everyone's going on holiday when no one's really going to pay attention and go through the effort of commenting um so it's always fascinating to see what comes up and it's interesting I had totally forgotten this, but it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the draft gas master plan comes out in, in December, um, was it 2021? And then, um, you know, once again, we've got the IRP now also being this long awaited IRP also being released with a, another sort of, you know, end of, um, uh, sort of end of January kind of deadline to respond to. Now, I think. They on in both cases the DMRE's kind of been pushed into extending the deadline a bit, but it is interesting to see what um, what gets prioritised and when. The timing is always a bit of a red flag. So, as far as I understand it, the the the, the twenty twenty three uh, uh, integrated resource plan, the one you're now talking about, it's still a draft, right? It doesn't hasn't reached it. It hasn't been published as a detailed final. Report. So, so the comments are, are you can still put your comments in if you want to um, until the end of the month. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's talk about of extending the deadlines a little bit longer, and it sounds like the the DMRE has already said, uh, you know, that they're going to rework some of the models based on some of the feedback they've already received. So, because I mean, you will have seen that uh, Meridian um, Economics released a, a whole kind of comparison around, you know, the, the sort of cost assumptions that go into into the IRP. Because what we've essentially ended up with is an IRP that says we must just build loads of gas and we must run it all the time for the next 20 years. Yes. 
It's so the the 2019 IRP also produced uh, under Guerra Mantasha was quite um, was quite sort of moderate about gas. It was it talked of a uh, thousand megawatts of new gas fired power by this year, which is probably not going to happen, mm-hmm. and another two thousand I think by twenty twenty seven or twenty eight. Um, does it does it, does the plan does the draft plan take that any further? I've looked at it and I can't find a number for how much gas might be in the pipeline, so to speak. So let me just let me just pull that up. So the sort of they talk about an emerging plan. Now obviously as yeah. you said, this is a draft IRP, it's they're waiting for input. Yeah. But under the sort of emerging plan we're suddenly talking about adding around 7.2 gigawatts of gas wow. by 2030 that's um, 7200 um, 7, megawatts 7200 megawatts of gas uh, yeah. which is huge which is enormous and what's so interesting is that there's a there's a wonderful line in the report um if you give me a second i just want to find it it's For they sure. talk about no, no, no. But, um you know how the how coal is sort of uh, the reliability of coal basically means that we now have to have gas. Um, I'll find a few, but but essentially, that, what's so interesting with the new IRP is that they basically are now saying because coal has become so unreliable, now we need to make up for it by having lots of gas, which is fascinating because the argument for coal has always time and time again been, oh, but it's baseload. We now seem to be admitting, well, it can't really function like that. But the plan, uh, rather than trying to sort of radically change the system, is to say, let's just burn loads and loads of gas in the interim. Yeah, because, you know, at the beginning of at the beginning of 21, you made a point in your in your um, in your piece about the master plan was that up to that point ESCOM leaving out the DMRE at the moment ESCOM had no gas to power projects planned and how's that changed has ESCOM gone along with this or is it being you know is is Mantashe I think is, is Mantashe on his own or is he is he acting with um, real authority and you know is the government behind him business behind him so it's an interesting question. There's a lot of energy analysts who say, look, we do need some gas. The reason being that, uh, you know, um, renewables are sort of intermittent. Um, you can't switch them on, you know, um, as soon as you need them. Um, and so you, you do need some form of dispatchable power. Now, that can be in the form of batteries. It could be in the form of hydro or it can be in the form of of gas or diesel. Um mm. So there is a there is a push to bring some gas into the system. I don't think we're going to end up in a situation where we have no gas whatsoever. It's really a question of how much gas. Now, your question about ESCOM, ESCOM has been pushing for a while to build a, a 3,000 megawatt plant in Richards Bay um, to run uh, gas turbines in Richards Bay. That's, that's now in the IRP. But what we also have is another stream of IPP gas and that's kind of where things get a bit interesting because we not only have car powership in there which might be ambitious (laughs) we also then have another 3,000 megawatts on top of that of additional IPP gas um, that would go out to the market and Susan is this 3,000 megawatts the same 3,000 megawatts that was in the 2019 um, IRP or is it because that never appeared if you follow me Gosh, let me just pull up. No, no, no. Sorry, I, d- I don't mean to the, put you. Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. You know, I just, somewhere. I just worry just that sometimes the, I- <laughs> the IRP, the IRP seem to sort of run on with each other um, quite well. So they talk about in the in twenty nine IRP, for instance, one thousand eight hundred sixty megawatts of new nuclear, where in fact that's simply um, a yeah. um, a, a being sort of uh, having its life renewed. So it's not new in that sense. It just wasn't yes. planned. Um, and I just wondered whether the so, whether this whether the IPP, this is the independent power producers, three thousand megawatts of gas, wasn't the same three thousand megawatts 
that we haven't done so far as as promised it's hard to know I yeah i mean it, it it is hard to know because the timelines have sort of shifted you know initially yeah. they spoke about bringing on a thousand megawatts of gas in 2024 now that yeah. hasn't materialized you know at at best there's the the kind of you know the assumption in the irp that maybe we'll get car power ship which i think is very doubtful yeah and it's probably one of the reasons why the DMRE now has to go back to the drawing board because that's quite critical if you lose dispatchable power um that's you know your first sort of bit of dispatchable power that comes that comes onto the grid it's quite it's quite critical um yeah. to have that yes so i mean yeah it's we're certainly expanding the role for gas and i mean i think what's interesting as well is that you know we're we're talking about as is always the case you, you end up with these long time yeah. horizons. And so we're not just talking about gas, which is used to fix temporary load shedding. We're talking about gas, which gets used in vast quantities for the next 20 years. And, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're starving, you're going to go and buy, you know, a sort of ridiculously expensive takeaway salad or something at, um, yeah. You know, at the garage shop, that's not going to be symptomatic of how you shop for groceries for the next 20 years. Yeah. And yeah. It, we're a little bit like doing something like that. You know, we're, we're sort of, we're going out shopping for gas in the midst of an energy crisis. And then the question is, does that really still make sense in the long term? It's interesting listening to reading, following Guido Mantasha's comments because he's so, you know, he was so strong about coal. Um, just a couple of years ago, and now when you when you read him on gas, this is the, the you know this is the great new solution. And and obviously one of the problems, and you've highlighted it in your pieces, is that if we stand, if we decide even today, you know, right, we're going to we we're going to use gas as a real hardcore baseload feedstock until twenty fifty. We'll only start building these things by about twenty thirty five. So these assets as you frequently point out in your pieces, could end up being really stranded. And a yeah, complete absolutely. waste of money. And it's, a, and it's a big problem with with gas because a huge component of it is uh, you know, is the fuel that you have to put into it. That's and, and that those prices are variable. That cost gets passed through to ESCOM. Um, you know, we saw that that was the the risk with the car power ship contracts, is that there was no clarity about how much this power is actually going to cost. Because it's taking a gamble on what is the gas price going to do over the next twenty years? Is there going to be gas available? Um, you know, with a with a changing sort of uh, climate around around climate change and fossil fuels, sure. and and what is the rand dollar exchange rate going to look like for the next twenty years? Those are because huge gambles to take over such a long period of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And there's so you couldn't, as I'm sure we do somewhat with coal here you couldn't have a rand price for gas or a rand price for coal so i guess that's where yeah i mean i guess that's where the you know the the sort of enthusiasm for domestic gas comes in yeah. um you know the part of the problem with gas you know there's there's this assumption that somehow we don't have gas because Oh, environmental groups. We don't have gas because people aren't willing to take the risk to build it, um, because it is so expensive. Particularly when you have to import gas. The problem with gas is, gas is that to transport it long distances, you have to liquefy it at great expense, put it into ships, sail it all the way here, and then regasify it. Those processes add huge costs to the cost of gas. Now, the potential solution to that is to develop um, South Africa's own gas. Uh, resources. But again, there's a real sort of chicken and egg with with gas. And, you know, companies like Total and, you know, other companies that have kind of gas investments, they've all sort of been looking to government to say, well, you need to commit to taking a whole bunch of this gas before we're going to develop it. Um, but but yeah, there's a kind of standoff that's happening, you know, and and in the in the space that develops, is just being filled with with people making their own plan with renewables. And it's what it, so interesting. So, just talk to me briefly about about. Um, wait a minute. Before I get to even where I'm going, 
So what Mant- initially it looked as if Mantasha was planning to use Petro SA uh, to create a sort of state-owned petroleum company, right? So he was going to um, take over a, th- a refinery, I think the the one in Durban. Um, mm. I even saw driving back from Transkei uh, at Christmas time down to the Cape. Um, I saw near Coffinvarba, which is not very far from where Guede owns um, uh, his his main farm. I saw a Petro SA petrol station. I'd never seen one before, and I presume how interesting. I presume it's you know it's there because he he because he's there. It's his, it's his backyard, um, <laughs> but it's 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 a tiny little thing. But it's you know very brightly coloured and uh, uh, unmistakably a Petro SA fuel station um oh you, you uh, must post a photo of that on twitter that sounds that yeah i know you know stupidly i just drove <laughs> past and didn't take i didn't oh. take it i really i really should have but tell me what just talk about sasol because sasol is the biggest gas used at the moment in the country um and it i wonder what it, just talk to us a little bit about what sasol's role in this because it used to own uh or t- a share in what was i think is called the romco pipeline where yeah. natural gas is is imported into the country from Maputo via this pipeline, and it's just now sold its stake in this pipeline to the state to Gweda. Um, yeah, I mean, so so Sassel has for years and years, Sassel has imported gas from from Mozambique. That gas is running out. That's part of the problem, and that's partly why Sassel has been. Um, I think it's fair to say kind of a, a strong lobbying force for government to to sort of go big on gas, um, you know, because they need the gas. And there is a, you know, they've had a, a plan for a very long time that they would import LNG um, through Maputo, through the um, Matola terminal. It's kind of approved. It's um, it's ready to go, but they're not taking a sort of, uh, or Total is not taking a sort of final investment decision because, you know, the, the as I understand it, the the kind of financials, the question, there's still too many questions. It's still too risky for them unless you have a big off taker, a big yeah. anchor customer, um, like, you know, like the the suckers that are the South African public and and yeah. ESCOM yes, us. Uh, energy users, and so that's really what what a lot of these companies want is uh, is for government to come in and and sort of make this very risky gamble a much safer bet for them. And you can see the risk, you know, Fleetwood Hrubler, who's the Sasol chief executive, um, you quote him in one of your pieces saying, "Gas in the long term." Is also a fossil fuel, and we said we want to get to net zero. I wonder whether he still means that. And if and if he That's does, what kind of what kind of long term customer is he going to turn out to be? I mean, Sasol is a fascinating one in itself, just in terms of you know they have to they're they're trying to kind of come up with a pivot. In my view, far too late in the day. They knew this was coming, and they've been sitting on their hands enjoying the profits for far too long. But I mean, that's that's just my personal view on it. But I mean. Yeah, I mean, Sassel's got to, they said for a long time that gas was going to be their plan, that LNG was going to be their plan. Part of the problem, and I, I seem to remember that just before the, uh, just before Russia invaded Ukraine, Sassel had sort of said, we're very close to announcing a deal, uh, you know, that's going to bring gas in via uh, LNG, via Mozambique. And, and then, and then Russia invaded Ukraine and the price of gas went through the roof because suddenly everyone is trying to avoid Russian gas. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's really, that's also partly been, you know, what's sort of yeah. really messed up our, our plans with developing gas is that the price has just sort of gone all over the place. And it has makes it really it, difficult it, to make Has it risen sharply since the, since the Ukraine war started? Yeah, I mean, it went literally through the roof. Uh, when when the war happened, it's kind of subsided again. It's kind of going a little bit further back down. But I mean, for instance, you know, one of the problems, one of the reasons we ended up with the car power ship debacle was that that original tender was based on a very an assumption of a very low gas price that just yeah. wasn't realistic. Um, and presumably, and so it's interesting to yeah. 
No, I was just going to say, you know, with with the with the Houthis in Yemen now blocking traffic through the Red Sea and effectively the Suez Canal, how would Russian gas even get here? I mean, by the time you, by the time you got, yeah, it would come from. Yeah, so you suggested in a really nice piece that I've kept, um, and I've made multiple copies of it because I keep losing them. Um, and I remember the headline was called The Evaporating Case for Gas. Um, and it sort of coincided with reports from the National Business Initiative and Meridian, who you mentioned just now, a very highly regarded consultancy. And you were sort of almost all saying the same thing, which was that we don't need much gas. Tell us about that piece and what your conclusions were. So... The the National Business Initiative, which is really kind of made up of a you know a collection of the sort of biggest companies in South Africa, including Sasol, they, um, including Sasol, uh, they kind of put forward these proposals, um, different kind of energy models, different you know, and a lot of them are incredibly useful. The report on gas was for me a little concerning because essentially it had one case, which was a realistic case of using gas simply to kind of supplement the growth of renewables and to, to make renewables work, cheaper renewables, you know. Yeah. Um, and then there was another case study, which was sort of, it almost felt like pandering to government's desire to unleash the gas sector. Um, because that's really what sort of seems to kind of come out of this one, gets the impression that you know, in, within the DMRE and within the, the Central Energy Fund group of companies, which includes PetroSA, that there's really a feeling of saying, you know, time is running out for us to exploit our gas reserves. And they know gas is, is going to go the way of coal um, in the not too distant future. And there's a, and it, it's kind of, we, you know, we were sort of messing around with nuclear for so long that we kind of didn't actually get going with our gas industry. Now the hour is very late for us to be doing that, but there seems to be a real sort of desire within, um, you know, within certain parts of government to say, uh, you know, it's it's now or never. If we don't take advantage now, we're not going to be able to, um, you know, this one's going to pass us by. Now sort of for economic and for environmental reasons, that's probably a good idea for, you know, for, for a large-scale gas industry to to pass us by. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people who will disagree with me. But, um, uh, but you know, it, it is also this, this sort of typical thing that happens with government is that, um, you know, a massive, lucrative, extractive industry kind of hones into view. And suddenly there's just a massive fight over who's going to get to benefit. Um, yeah. Which is certainly it's, what we've been seeing at PetroSA. Uh, PetroSA is, is is fascinating from that perspective. It, yeah, just explain explain that a little bit. So, so PetroSA has just signed a contract with Gazprom Bank, um, mm. and I presume Gazprom Bank is the, is is part of the Gazprom, the Russian Gazprom Empire. What what is yeah. that contract about? What will they Will the bank simply finance something, or will it actually this does this contract actually deliver gas? And what how will it be used? So it's an interesting one. So Petros A, one of the assets it has on its books is the um, gas to liquids refinery in Mussel Bay. Um, you know, it was built in kind of the the sort of dying days of apartheid. Yeah. The idea was to you know um, to to kind of get around. UN oil embargoes by instead of taking oil and refining that into petrol and diesel, uh, the idea was that it would take offshore gas, um, which wasn't very in demand at the time, take that, pump it in from offshore um, gas wells, pump it into this refinery that would then turn gas into liquid petroleum products. Uh, the problem is, is that it ran out of feedstock a couple of years ago. Yeah. And since then has been a giant albatross around Petrosa's neck. Now the refinery needs, it's been mothballed, but it needs a lot of money to restart it. And the problem that Petrosa is facing 
is that if it doesn't find someone to restart this refinery, it's got to pay, it's around 14 billion rand to rehabilitate and shut down this refinery properly. It's so big, this one asset, that it'll essentially largely sort of wipe out PetroSA if it's forced to do that. So PetroSA is quite desperate to keep this asset going, um, which is how they ended up you know, signing this deal with Gazprom Bank. They went out to the market and they said, we're looking for someone who's willing to invest um, up to $200 million, around 3.7, 3.8 billion rand, to restart this refinery and to, to keep PetroSA's assets going. Now, it's a really questionable tender in some ways because, you know, the, it had sort of quite strange, quite strict selection criteria. What ends up happening is you have 20 bidders, 19 of the 20 get eliminated, and lo and behold, the only bidder, <laughs> yeah. who in fact, it turns out, had put in, um, uh, who had made an unsolicited bid before the tender was drawn up. In, in, in fact, yeah. their bid is so closely matched to the tender, lo and behold, that <laughs> yeah. they end up being the only valid bidder. And you know, that's I know how, that, that's I know essentially that's how I know yeah. this refinery quite well. I pass it every time I go on holiday. Um, it's just outside of okay. Mossel Bay. And it's right next to an ESCOM uh, uh, peaking plant. Um, you can see the generators. Yeah. And literally, there's just a wire fence between the two. Um, and the gas, uh, the, the, the Petro SA refinery has these two very tall, thin, sort of flaring chimneys that... that um, that used to have flames coming out of them, and now for the the last three or four or five years, um, have been completely, you know, flame free. Uh, they obviously obviously shut down. But I would have always thought that the, the idea would be to refine diesel or petrol, some petroleum product to burn in the ESCOM plant. But it might be more complicated than that. It's actually simpler than that. The oh. the where the real money lies in that asset is in taking the gas and sending it straight to the to the ESCOM plants. You know, there's no point in taking Which is fifty which is fifty meters away. Which is fifty meters away, as you say. There's no point in taking a high value product like gas, turning it into a low value product like diesel and then burning it when you can just take it straight to the plant, you know, without without having to convert it into a liquid fuel. Yeah. So that's really where the money is for PetroSA. That's really where they they sort of have an advantage, a sort of head start in the market is in gas to power. Um, but so in order would... to do that, you know, they they really need to keep that refinery doing something because otherwise they're going to have to pay an extraordinary amount of money to shut it down. And and Susan, so the the the, the argument which which made some sense when I first heard it was that you know if you could convert these diesel uh, turbines that we now use, you know, to, to a sort of standby power. We use them all the time, I suspect, burning, you know, gazillion liters or gallons of, of, of diesel. If you could convert them into gas, uh, it would make some kind of sense. But but I also presume that, that um, because ESCOM is under the control of one minister and PetroSA, the refinery next door, is under the control of another one, that there would be some argument to be had or a nice you know a nice thing to be a fly on the wall at about how much PetroSA would charge escom for the gas if it had it to sell or the, yeah, for the yeah absolutely i mean because that's i mean you you're absolutely right because diesel has been selling diesel to escom has been the lifeline for PetroSA. you know they're incredibly cagey they refuse to reveal any information about their diesel contracts. But we do know that for the first time in a number of years, PetroSA sort of managed to turn a profit and it's off the back of them buying, I think it's around 20 billion rands worth of diesel um, and then on selling it to ESCOM at a, at a profit. You know, and in their annual reports, they kind of talk about how they're going to make aggressive margins on this. And this is really what's keeping PetroSA afloat at the moment. Is yeah. uh, is is being this kind of the main supplier to ESCOM of diesel. Um, it's certainly not going to be something that, if that switches from from diesel to gas, they're going to want to be in on that that arrangement. Which is why 
part of the another tender which they issued around the same time is looking to restart uh, their offshore gas wells to bring yes. to bring yeah. offshore gas onshore. We'll come to that in a second. But in in the going back to the evaporating case uh, for gas, um, you you quote Meridian, and this is back in I think Meridian would have done this 20, 2020, 2021. Um, they say, and and Meridian's run by a guy, if I'm not mistaken, who sits on the president's uh, economic advisory council. It, it's, they say gas is no longer a transition fuel in the power sector. There's insufficient demand for gas in the power sector to anchor lower demand in other sectors. And forcing in large-scale gas will displace renewables, increase emissions, and the cost of electricity. And that was the case. I mean, that was the sort of point of view, wasn't it? three or four years ago, two, three years ago. But it's kind of changed, partly because um, the Europeans, in reacting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, were made quickly, acutely aware of how dependent they were on Russian gas. Um, uh, and um, and then they began to make, the Europeans began to make all sorts of um, changes to their sort of uh, clean energy uh, uh, sort of pathway they began to relax some of the rules yeah we'll take a little longer to do this a little longer to do that and we've picked up on that haven't we I mean we can now we now have debates in this country about you know slowing down the rate of decommissioning of ESCOM plant what what has happened generally in your view to the the core argument for a really fast run at um, at you know, uh, clean energy. Yeah, has I mean, it's it, such has, a good point. Has it come off made. the boil? I, you know, in a way, yes and, and no. I mean, I think it depends who one's speaking to. You know, I think if you look at, at government, um, if you look at the DMRE, they certainly have taken the sort of actions of, of EU countries in sort of, you know, their scramble for gas. And they've really taken that as license to say, you know, here is here is evidence that we deserve yeah. our, our moment of gas. And they've been quite sort of gleeful about about what's what's happened in the EU and really taken it um, and run with it. So hence why you end up with an IRP, which suddenly says, oh, let's have loads of gas. And, yeah. you know, let's not just use it as peaking. Let's use this as mid-merit gas, which means, you know, sometimes burning gas for 12 hours a day, you know, rather than just the sort of one or two where you need it. Yeah. So I think in terms of what government is saying, there's there's suddenly this pivot. And if, and if I was, you know, if I was a coal miner, I might feel slightly aggrieved because as you point yeah. out, you know, Mantashe went from everything about coal to them suddenly being not so popular anymore. Suddenly it's all about gas. But then again, almost, I think one has to also, yeah. No, I was just saying, it's almost like if, if, if the coal was a sort of dummy pass, you know, where you get people heading off in one way and arguing, <laughs> you know, having the fight about coal while you, you know, you while you're busy actually doing something completely different with gas um, out of the sort of direct view um, of the public. Yeah, I mean, look, there is, I mean, there is also, you know, we'd also see a kind of, of return of of coal, but that does really seem a bit pie in the sky in the IRP. But I mean, yeah, it's a. I think one also has to look at like what's happening practically. You know, one can look at the IRP, one can look at the old IRP, the new IRP, and sort of say, well, this is the plan. And then there's the reality of what happens while government's making pie-in-the-sky pie plans that just don't materialize. There's the reality that, like, you know, the private sector has just taken renewables and run with it, and that, that you know, that, that the private sector is just making a plan um, in the absence yeah. of government developing a really realistic plan. You know, I, that's sort of almost the sense that I get is that, you know, whereas the previous IRP, there was a lot of, hand wringing about it it feels mm. and maybe this is just my perspective and who i'm speaking to but it feels a little bit like people are treating this irp as like oh come on <laughs> this is never yeah. going to happen right so why are we relying we don't need to be like we should be worried about it and because you know 
Yeah. Well, but, I mean, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, there's I, a real problem with government making unrealistic plans, and then, and then you know, policy yeah. and planning just having to kind of fill in the fill in the gap on the hoof. That's that's not a way yeah. to run a government. Well, look, the IRPs have form. You know, I mean, if the I've got I've got the the, the 2019 one in front of me. I mean, we haven't met we haven't met any of the targets in the IRP in that one, not yet. Anyway, I mean, yes, it's, actually, um, this is a. Why would we meet them in the new one? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, for me, the the um, car powership was such a it was such a classic example of that. You know, we go out um, on tender. We say we need two thousand megawatts of dispatchable power. There are twenty eight bidders that put in bids. Um, you know, the DMRE wouldn't say how mm. many how many qualified and how many didn't. But, you know, we end up picking car powership because, you know, using a very low gas price at that point, it seems like a really cheap option. But they don't have the environmental permits and they've tried to cut corners all over the place. They need to get port permission, which they don't have. So they end up being not ready. And instead of saying, right, well, there's 28 other bidders behind you, or 25 other bidders behind you who can do the job. We say, no, no, we're going to stick with car powership. And it feels a little bit like the IRP suffers from that, you know, this sort of determination to um, to kind of say this is what we want at all costs and um, no matter how unrealistic it is. Yeah. The, um, Hence why um, we keep seeing new coal, like, being inserted into the IRP, even though that's just never going to happen. Yeah. Well, it was it was in the 29 IRP as well, if I'm not mistaken. It was, I think there was um, 1,500 megawatts of new coal. But, yeah, I mean, so they just stick it in there. No one's going no to pay for it. No one's going to finance it. I wonder what yeah, the appetite, so. what the appetite in, in the private sector is, the banks, uh, is for... For gas, I mean, I've spoken to a couple of people in the private sector, and they're rather keen on gas. You know, big new investments and uh, a little bit for everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got you've got many thousands of kilometres of uh, of uh, pipeline. You've got a power plant. I think has been planned for Kucha in in uh, near, uh, Port Elizabeth. Um, uh, you've got con- you know the Romco pipeline goes pretty close to some. Big ESCOM power stations that they're now thinking of. They talk about uh, converting. Um, who pays for all of this? Of course, is is always amusing because I remember even in the one, even in Kamati, which was decommissioned year before last, and about which has now been a whole fuss because the jobs promised have not emerged. That was based on on a loan from the World Bank for seven hundred and fifty million dollars, and and the. The key clause in there was that Kamati had to close. You close it, we'll give you seven fifty million dollars. Um, where does that kind of money come from? If you now, if you're simply now adding another fossil fuel step to your road to, um, you know, zero carbon. Yeah, I mean, look, all of those things. It's got to be. Uh, it's got to be sort of recovered from the price of of electricity. Hmm. I mean, it does. It does sort of feel like one of the more realistic projects at the moment is Transnet has sort of appointed a preferred bidder to to develop an LNG terminal in Richards Bay. Yeah. This has always been an, an interesting one. That when there's and you know there's been talk for years of having LNG import terminals, and DMRE has always been very keen on the Eastern Cape being the location. And Transnet yeah. has always been very keen on Richards Bay. It looks like Transnet seems to have won out here. Um, it's at least seemed to be further along in the process. You know, the um, and, and that would essentially allow LNG to be imported into Richards Bay, connect into the pipelines that then, you know, bring can bring that gas uh, inland yeah. for industrial users. Yeah. So there is a so there is a, a market in industrial users who need access to gas, and it feels like that is a solution that um, that feels like it feels practical because there's already someone who's saying we'll take gas if you can bring yeah. it. Um, you know, it's gone through a proper Section Fifty Six process to appoint a preferred bidder. I have questions about that process, yeah. but nonetheless, 
But, but that feels like that's probably the more yeah. realistic one. Ultimately, um, though, what the DMIE is talking about is not just supplying uh, gas users now, like Sasol. They're talking about mm. building a gas-fired power network. I mean, they're talking about making electricity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, that's strangely enough, in the, the, so there's a new gas IPP program which came out, um, I think it was, it was earlier this month, they had a bidders yes. conference. They announced it in December and they said, we're going out on bid window seven for renewables. We're going out on a gas IPP and we're going out for nuclear. Um, and we're going to go out to the market and ask for, for bidders. So the gas yeah. that they're, that they're asking for, they're essentially only asking for 2000 out of the 3000 megawatts that will go to the IPPs. A thousand right. megawatts for some strange reason has been reserved for Kuche, uh in the Eastern Cape. Yes, yeah, so um, there's a plan there. But that's they're not, now saying. Yeah, um, I mean, look, they, they have had a long-running uh, sort of plan to develop um, a gas power plant in Kuche, but it's unclear why they get special treatment to reserve that. Yeah. But nonetheless, yeah. I mean, so so the ESCOM project, the 3,000 megawatts that ESCOM wants to do, that's put to one side. Um, you know, the IRP assumes that that will come online, but only in um, 2028. Yes. But it's now a question of this extra two thousand megawatts that they're that they're going out to the market to go and look for. It might have to be three thousand if they're planning to also replace the yeah. Um, and what 1, was interesting? What was interesting about that? That uh, yeah. was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, because they say that these is this IPP process of this month that you're talking about is that that this has to be land based, so not car powership. Um, yeah, and it also has to be it also has to be in South Africa. And I remember um, a very senior uh, gentleman at ESCOM, no longer there, telling me that one possibility was that they could build a gas-fired power station in in Mozambique, and ESCOM would sign then sign a contract with it for power for however long. And the good, the interesting thing about Mozambique was one because it's it's already um, uh, you know there's a gas terminal there of some kind, I presume, um, uh, and it's very close to. The transmission network, you know, the Mosel um, yeah. uh, aluminium plant in, uh, just outside Maputo um, has an army of, uh, you know, power lines marching into it, which could easily be reverse attack to bring power into this country. I've also quickly uh, um, mm. just seen reports recently that Mozambique is going to cancel the Kobora-Bassa um, agreement. Have you, have you followed that at all, Susan? That we won't get harder power from Mozambique anymore. Have you seen anything? I, I actually that's been that's actually been on my list of things to read up because I okay. thought that was interesting. But I mean, <laughs> just is. on the you know on the on the Mozambique side, I mean, one of the things, one of the suggestions that we had heard was being looked at at one stage was to actually yeah. um, have car power ships situated in Mozambique and to import the gas. Yeah. Or import the power from a car power ship. You know, that's something that has Mantashe has mentioned it a couple of times before yeah. is perhaps what we need to do is import not the molecules of gas, but import the electricity. The so yeah, yeah fascinating yeah. that the gas IPP that's just come out, that you know, that it it seems to be kind of correcting some of the mistakes. That yeah. evidently happened with car power ship. You know, they yeah. they say very clearly you have to have your environmental authorization in place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting as well that they're saying now, you know, your power has to be dispatchable twenty four hours a day because one of the big problems that we had with the RMI four P and which was dominated by car power ship is that we were talking about taking power from, you know, I think it's like five in the morning yeah. till nine at night. Well, we have plenty of power during the day. We don't actually need power in the middle of the day. We need power during those peaks, and sometimes we even need it at night, but but not, yeah. you know, in the middle of the day, so we can take care of it. So yeah. it does seem like the IPP office has certainly learned from some of those mistakes. Uh, mm. Fascinating that they say they don't want, it's got to be land-based, but they're not yeah. interested in floating power plants. Absolutely fascinating from that perspective. Um, kind of so it does really a question a mark. Yeah. Susan, yeah. We, we're going to run out of time, but obviously... This sort of planning that's going on, and it's very confusing, and it's not clear, um, and people are, you know, as you say, there's a lot of wishful thinking going on. Thinking going on. 
But in the middle of all of this, two familiar things raise their hand, right? The first is corruption. The A, hmm. the ANC, we know profits from tenders by way of kickbacks and a gas boom could keep the money rolling in for decades. And second is incompetence. I mean, it's all very well to have a grand plan on paper, but how late will we be with this one? You know, the, the reason I raise this is your most recent and gobsmacking story about how a guy with a seriously poor record for financial probity and almost no experience of the gas business has just landed a huge tender uh, from Greta Mantasha's uh, department. Uh, and just tell us a little bit about him. Who is Lawrence Malawudzi and what has he won? So it's such a fascinating one. You know, he's a, a character I came across in 2016 when I was reporting on the PIC and sort of, you know, some the first really kind of questionable deals that started emerging from the PIC. He ended up getting two deals funded by the PIC uh, for around 3.2 billion rand, I think it was. And, you know, there was sort of immediately question marks about it. There was kind of a a trustee on one of Zuma's trusts was kind of cut into the deal. Uh, it looked like at a later stage, it looked like we, we were able to show that a PIC senior employee had potentially been cut into the deal as well using a front company. So really sort of questionable stuff. Um, and he was really a kind of central character in the Empathy Commission investigation into, into malfeasance at the PIC. You know, his name, what we pointed out in the story, his name appears 176 times in the final report. He's really pretty central to to what gets exposed there. So it's kind of gobsmacking that that he's the guy when Petrose put out a tender and they say, well, we'd like to get someone who can fund a massive expansion um, redevelopment of our offshore gas assets, our offshore gas wells. He's the guy they end up uh, picking. You know, his company, Equator Holdings, you know, one of the criteria of the tender was to say, you know, we're, we're talking about a major amount of money here. Um, I think that the sort of figure was around 22 billion rand. 21.6. 21.6 billion rand that we would potentially, that Petrosa would potentially need. So when they put out the tender, they say, look, because it's such a vast amount of money that we're talking about, this is a very serious tender. We want only established players or, you know, um, financial institutions. Credible, credible financial institutions. Yeah. Credible financial institutions to apply for this one. So the fact that they end up picking Mr. Mulaudzi's company is kind of astonishing. And, you know, some of the questions that we sort of put to them was, you know, all of this information about him is in the public domain surely that's going to impact his ability to go out there into the market and raise money. Um, how realistic is this that he's actually going to to be able to do this? Um, what's interesting, though, is that, you know, in the end, he might not need to raise money. And it's a funny twist in the story that essentially uh, Petrose has two tenders. They end up essentially overlapping. So you have yeah. one group that gets picked to to sort of refurbish, do the actual refurbishment of the offshore gas fields. And you have another group, which is Mr. Malodzi's company, that gets picked just to fund it. And what's alleged is that Petrose then says to the two groups, well, why don't you guys kind of work it out and see if you can if you can find synergies? Um, you know, one of the sources that we spoke to said to us, look, they were foisted on us. They don't add any value to us. But what essentially happens is Mr. Mulazzi ends up not really having to provide the funding for that massive expansion, but he ends up with 10% of the of the deal, um, which is a, it's a new one. <laughs> I haven't seen that before, yeah. but I mean, yeah, for, for providing seemingly very little and having very little track record experience, well, no track record. Massive no track record. I mean, according yeah. to your report, he works out of an office in his home. From what we can tell, yeah, that's where Equator's yeah. based. I mean, what's so fascinating again is that you know Equator bids for the the tender that Gazprom ends up winning, and they end up being eliminated. They they get zero out of a hundred in the scoring yes. Um, yes. because the people at Petro say says, well, we can't really establish any details about this entity. None of the stuff seems to check out. Yet at the same time. Petro is saying, nonetheless, this is the company we're going to pick 
for this massive no, it's um, quite extraordinary. to fund so on, the day, on the day that they announced expansion. the gas on the day they announced the Gazprom bank deal publicly as a press conference they then leave the press conference and go into another room and do this deal with him. Yeah, uh, fascinating. I know. I mean, they hold they hold this press conference. It's brutal. You, you know, the journalists are don't hold, hold back. Yeah. Um, in terms of saying, how can you go ahead and sign this massive deal with Gazprom Bank, considering that the parent company is under sanctions, considering all of the risks that this poses considering all of the details about this tender, which really don't seem to check out. And and Petrosay doesn't really seem faced by that. They kind of, as you say, they, they sort of walk out, they go into a different room and they have a private signing ceremony with a deal that is multiples bigger. Now, what's interesting yeah. is that the deal that Petrosay actually signs on that day, um, they've already with signed from it, bank. you know, well, the, the deal that they sign with Mr. Molodzi's company, okay. Equator, They've already kind of engineered it so that, allegedly, so that he gets 10% of the redevelopment of the the offshore gas wells. But now they need to also fund and fix the infrastructure that's going to bring that gas, you know, from the wells to to what they call the FA platform, um, pipe the gas onshore, uh, do all Mm. kinds of other things like conversion into LNG, Mm. all of that. and they sort of take this one tender that Mr. Malazzi has won under questionable circumstances, and they just expand it. And they say, well, why don't you now do the feasibility studies on all of this infrastructure refurbishment? Why don't you fund it? Why don't you execute the projects? Um, now, these are the, the argument that we made with PetroSA was to say, look, you adjudicated him on a funding-only tender. He wasn't required to have any kind of technical yeah. expertise. Yeah. And based on the draft version of the contract which we've seen and that they don't dispute um it's clear that he he hasn't been able to demonstrate any kind of technical capabilities because there's a condition precedent in there which says he has 180 days six months to demonstrate that he has the technical capabilities to undertake the project that you've already awarded to him that doesn't make it's sense. quite it's remarkable you know i mean it's, yeah. government no look i mean it's it it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't feel good does it um, I hope, Susan, that you plug away at this. You do so well, um, and uh, you know you've got us to the point where, where fortunately, perhaps, um, the great gas plan turns out to be a great, you know, a great gas um, uh, something else. You know, not a plan. It's 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 it just doesn't sound real, um, particularly if the if one of the high points is giving a huge contract to a man who doesn't know what he's doing in this particular field and who has a dodgy record. It's all unbelievable. Anyway, listen, uh, Susan, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much, uh, um, Susan Comrie from Ambabungani, for helping us all today. And I hope to come back. And thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, be safe. Bye-bye.